0: Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procino Wells & Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Amber Woodland, one of the attorneys at Procino Wells & Woodland, and I'm joined today by Danielle Marvel, our elder law coordinator. We're excited to discuss Medicaid, how to pay for long-term care using public benefits, so let's go ahead and get started. Hey Danielle. Hi there. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for including me. Yes. We absolutely love Danielle's expertise on long-term care Medicaid and what she offers to our families that we serve and and so we figured it would be a great opportunity for her to help us dig into these rules about using long-term care Medicaid to help offset the cost of care whether it be at home or in a skilled nursing facility. So Medicaid as a whole is sometimes a confusing topic. So can you just briefly and generally describe the difference between someone who might be interested in pursuing long-term care Medicaid benefits versus a community Medicaid? Sure. All types
1: of Medicaid are generally needs-based that have different tests to go along with those needs-based. However, long-term care is a little bit more difficult to achieve because there's more rules to meet including assets and income whereas in the community, community is more focused on income and what your needs are there. There's also many types of Medicaid that cover things from just food stamps to electric help to full medical benefits for somebody in the community, whereas long-term care Medicaid, it covers a lot of extra little things, but the main focus is to help pay for care in the home or in a long-term care facility.
0: Awesome. I, I had to go to Danielle just this week and say, okay, Danielle, I need help understanding what community Medicaid means. And the best way she described it to me was it's like health insurance. Community Medicaid offers a health insurance benefit, and that was super helpful for me because I'm so focused typically in long-term care Medicaid, which is that benefit to help pay for custodial care, assistance with activities of daily living. And so is long-term care Medicaid, once eligibility has been achieved, a stream of payments that a family receives, or does Medicaid pay the provider directly? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Medicaid, once it's achieved for long-term care, pays the provider. They do not pay money directly to the family like other type of bene- benefits, long-term care benefits, such
0: as Veterans Administration. Mm-hmm. So once achieving eligibility, let's get into this. So I referred to long-term care Medicaid as having a three-part test. And you've probably heard me say it a thousand times. We have to meet a three-part test. Parts one, part two, and part three all have to be satisfied before eligibility can be achieved. Part one of the three-part test is medical eligibility. I refer to that as the easiest part of the test to qualify for, but could you talk about how does Medicaid determine if a person is medically eligible to receive long-term care Medicaid? Sure. When we make
1: a referral In the Medicaid process, there is a nurse that works with the Medicaid office who is then going to either reach out to the applicant's family doctor or the facility, if they're in a facility, and get medical documentation to show what their needs are, what their diagnoses are. They're also going to reach out to the family to get a feeling of what that person needs to be able to live safely and comfortably in the home, what type of care they need, what type of assistance they need, if that's just to help with medication or to get to doctor's appointments, things along those lines. Those are all going to be considered when we make that referral for Medicaid to determine whether or not somebody has a medical need for
0: care. So most of the time families are coming to us because it's clear that there is a medical need. There have been a very rare, very rarely does it happen where medical eligibility can be difficult to achieve, but usually medical eligibility is a slam dunk. The family wouldn't even be communicating with us about their needs if there wasn't some sort of custodial care that was required. That's correct. It's difficult. The difficult situations we see when
1: a family member knows or believes that their loved one is ready for care, but it's not always clear to Medicaid are those early stages of dementia where you can see the slow signs of dementia, but on paper it's not always necessarily clear to Medicaid. Those are going to be your more touchy. Um, applications when you're trying to seek medical
0: approval. Okay, so let's get into parts two and three of the three-part eligibility test. This is where we spend a majority of our time as advisors determining what, if any, planning needs to be done to achieve eligibility under the latter two parts of the test. So there's income eligibility and there's asset eligibility. Let's get income eligibility out of the way first. So, there are different rules between Delaware and Maryland related to income eligibility. So, we refer to this as Delaware's income cap. You know, if a person has social security or pension benefits or a combination of the two, that's income. If if a client in Delaware has income over Delaware's income cap amount. What does that look like? And and what do we typically have to do to resolve that excess income situation? Sure. First, I think it's important to
1: point out that the income is evaluated as gross income. Mm -hmm. It's not what you actually receive in the bank every month. That's your net income. It is what you receive gross before taxes are withheld, before medical deductions are withheld, medical premiums are withheld. And so in Delaware, the income cap currently is $1,985. It does change annually for the most part. And if you are over that limit, there is a tool that we can use called a Miller Trust, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more here in a second. Um, Its legal name is a Qualified Income Trust. And it's basically a trust document that is used to open a bank account, income flows through it each month, and you use it to pay for care or your household expenses, Um, Maryland does not have that same rule. Maryland, you can virtually have unlimited income as long as it does not exceed your cost of care. There needs to be a shortfall between your income and your cost of care, or otherwise you could
0: afford to pay for your care. Perfect. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point to make because not many of our clients receive enough monthly income through social security and pension benefits typically to privately pay for their care. There is generally a shortfall, especially when cost of care is twelve, thirteen thousand dollars a month. We don't see families with that kind of monthly income coming in. So in Delaware we have to use the Miller Trust if they have income over nineteen eighty five, but not so much that they could privately pay for care. So yeah, just Miller Trust are probably one of the most highly confused legal tools that elder law attorneys use to qualify for Medicaid eligibility. We like to explain them very practically because it is essentially just a hoop that has to be jumped through for a client who has more income, gross income, than the income cap amount. And it's just what you said, Danielle. It's We create a legal document that's called a Miller Trust, allows us to open a bank account. Income can be redirected to that account. But that income can still be used on a monthly basis. So there's typically not money accumulating in that account. If money accumulated, though, in that account, then the state of Delaware is the primary beneficiary. They get reimbursed upon death of the trust maker, which would be the client who's achieving el- eligibility for Medicaid, up to the amount of Medicaid benefits that were paid out during that person's lifetime. So we advise our clients generally, don't let money accumulate in the Miller Trust. Use it on a monthly basis. So it's just something we have to do when we identify that a client is over the income cap. Maryland's a little bit easier. Right. And
1: it's typically, it's not going to be used actually until you're ready to apply for Medicaid. That's not something that you would do in advance like some of the other planning that we do. That is something that is used starting the month that you're seeking eligibility.
0: Perfect. Yeah. A Miller Trust isn't a pre-planning tool. It doesn't hide or shelter assets. It's strictly used to satisfy the income eligibility rules. Yeah, really good point. So a question we often get is related to how does income have to be spent? So Maryland only really pays for, through the Medicaid program, for skilled care in a nursing home. Delaware offers Medicaid benefits in a skilled nursing home, but they also offer benefits at home. So let's first just talk about a single person who's eligible for Medicaid in both states and what would be their requirement? What of their income would they have to use to contribute towards the cost of their care?
1: Yeah, I'm going to start with the skilled nursing facility because that's really virtually the same in both states. Okay, Um, When a single person is under Medicaid in a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home, they are going to be required to pay virtually all of their own income to the facility each month as part of their cost of care, their patient liability, however you want to call that. Um, There are exceptions, certain allowances that they're allowed to keep. They are allowed to keep enough money to pay any monthly health insurance premiums, and they are also allowed to keep a certain amount for personal needs, such as beauty shop, um, clothing, things along those lines. In Maryland right now, that is $83. That generally does change annually. In Delaware, it's $50. That does not change as often.
0: Yeah, we went from $44 to, to $50, $50 a couple yeah. years ago, and it's been that way. So that's that's a pretty small personal needs allowance. Yeah.
1: So as you can see, that's not going to get you much more than maybe a beauty shop visit here or there. Um, for Delaware, where services are available in the home, the person is actually able to keep all of their income and Medicaid will pay for whatever care falls under their covered services. Because the way Medicaid looks at it is they have to be able to support themselves in the home. They have to continue to pay for rent. They have to continue to pay for electric, heat, things along those lines. So that's why they allow them to retain all of their
0: monthly income. So let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Once a person becomes eligible for Medicaid, Mm -hmm. you said they are allowed to use their income to pay health insurance premiums, and then they get that small personal needs allowance. So when a person's on Medicaid, do they still need their supplemental health insurance? We get this question a lot, and we always
1: advise for them to keep their benefit for several reasons. One, if they're in a skilled nursing facility and they stop that benefit, they're just gonna have to turn around and pay that income to the facility. So there's no benefit to canceling it, but there are some added benefits to keeping it. Um, For example, Medicaid is state-specific, so it's generally only gonna pick up Medicare's coinsurance in that state. Um, Also, not all providers accept Medicaid. So if you're going to a specialist that doesn't accept Medicaid, you could be looking at that 20% coinsurance that Medicare doesn't
0: cover. So again, there's no reason not to keep it. I think it's just another important distinction. Long-term care Medicaid pays for custodial care. You still need your Medicare and your supplemental insurance to pay for your medical care needs. So a a client that we qualify for long-term care Medicaid still has health insurance and is still encouraged to use their income to pay their supplemental health insurance premiums. Correct. There are also
1: other rules. If you're enrolled in a Medicaid, long-term care Medicaid program, there's going to be an expectation that you are still enrolled in a Medicare D plan for prescriptions anyway, um, to the point that if you're not enrolled in one, you will automatically be enrolled in one unless you have some other type of prescription coverage. So there is that expectation as well that some of that insurance is going to be
0: kept in place even when you become eligible for Medicaid. Perfect. Let's just talk briefly about if a person is married. Let's just use married couple, one spouse in a nursing home, one spouse still living in the community who's healthy. Can the spouse who's living in the community ever keep any of the ill spouse's income or does all of the ill spouse's income have to be paid
1: to the nursing home? So there are certainly instances where the community spouse is able to keep some of the income for the person that's in the facility. Um, There are impoverishment rules in place for both income and asset to make sure that the spouse living in the community is able to maintain their home, doesn't have to worry about being put out on the street. And so what they do is they look at the community spouse's gross income, and if it is under a certain threshold, then that community spouse is going to be able to keep
0: their loved, part of their spouse's income, Right. Because we're going to make sure that the spouse still living in the community has enough income to live on. Right. And so sometimes there is a safeguard or a set aside of the ill spouse's income to allow the well spouse to keep. So related to assets, let's go to the third part of the test. This is truly where we spend most of our time in terms of analysis. The general rule that Medicaid has from an asset perspective is harsh. $2,000 of assets in Delaware, $2,500 of assets in Maryland. That seems like nothing. And we strategically plan to help folks spend down, what we call spend down to those thresholds. But today, we're not really talking about planning strategies as much as we just want to get out there what are the medicaid eligibility rules so we know that the asset limit is two thousand dollars in delaware twenty five hundred dollars in maryland but there are some asset exclusions so what doesn't medicaid count sure so one of the
1: things that they don't count is a home if the person receiving medicaid is living in that home or if there's a spouse still living in the home. That's one of the biggest assets that is generally off the table as we like to refer to it. Um, They are also allowed to keep at least one car, Mm -hmm. depending on which state you're in.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Term life insurance. So that's a life insurance policy that does not have cash value. That's not counted Um, Irrevocable prepaid funeral arrangements, so if you go and prepay your funeral with a funeral home and they put it in an irrevocable contract where you can't go back and say, I've changed my mind, I want my money back, that is also excluded as well. Um, Certain other life insurance policies could possibly be excluded just when it's depending on how many other policies you have, but those are the main things that you're going to
0: see that are excluded unless you go to Delaware. Right. So, so go ahead and talk about the one huge exclusion in Delaware that we love to use yeah. in a married couple case. So, in Delaware, the well spouse or the community
1: spouse, their retirement accounts are completely off the table for Medicaid. In contrast to Maryland where that's not the case, they're countable. So, that can be a huge asset to somebody that is still healthy, but Their spouse, unfortunately, is now in a position of needing care.
0: Yeah, years ago, I love to tell this story because it was just, it was a client of mine who just had received bad advice and was told that she needed, as the primary earner in her household, to use her 401k to pay for her husband's care in a nursing home. And in Delaware, that is not the case. She was entitled to keep her 401k. And I think the policy makes sense. She's entering into her retirement years. If she spends her 401k paying for her husband's long-term care, what is she going to use to support herself during her retirement years? So we get the question sometimes, should my loved one receive care in Maryland or in Delaware, especially because we're neighboring states and the rules do vary across state lines. And The answer to that is, it depends. It truly depends on the facts and circumstances. But this protection of the well spouse's retirement accounts in Delaware can be a huge planning opportunity. I think another question we get sometimes, does Medicaid make you have a yard sale and sell all the contents in your house and reduce that to cash? No, they don't.
1: (laughs) It would be really hard to document if you were getting the value of what your stuff was anyway. And most of the stuff in your house is is priceless in your eyes anyway. So you're never going to get what you paid for it. Yeah. So, no, they're not concerned with your personal objects like your coffee table or your big screen TV. They're not concerned about those. Yep. What
0: about boats? Trailers, RVs, campers, what's kind of the general rule? So, again, that's a state-specific type of question Mm -hmm. because
1: the rule of thumb is if there's a title, you're going to have to report it. In Delaware, boats do not have a title. Mm -hmm. They have a card. In Maryland, they do. So there's the difference between states
0: again. Yeah. And I think it's important to just kind of say to our listeners, this stuff is complicated. Right. The rules, although they're federally based, they do vary across state lines. So even if you've had the experience of qualifying for Medicaid in one state, you're not going to have the same exact experience in another state. I also think it's important to say once you become eligible for Medicaid in a state, it only covers care in that state if you move to a new state you've got to go through the medicaid process again in the new state yeah but doesn't it doesn't carry over with you across state lines like medicare and health insurance does yeah so so that means that everything else is on the table Mm -hmm. so bank accounts regardless of how they're titled even if your kids names are on them they're countable that means stocks bonds life insurance with cash value the retirement accounts in certain instances, real estate, partial interest in real estate, timeshares. I mean, it really is everything else right. that's on the table. And in a single-person case, it's too much if it's worth more than 2000 or $2,500. Yeah. In a married couple case, you want to just talk generally about the resource resource allowance for the well spouse?
1: Sure. So Medicaid does permit what's called a community spouse resource allowance. It's a threshold that they set. Um, Sometimes it's state specific. Sometimes it's a federal level that they have a minimum and a maximum. So basically what they do is they look at the combined assets on what's called the snapshot date that varies as well. That sometimes is the application date or sometimes the date that a person is admitted to a facility. They take the assets, divide them in half they look at one half that they say belongs to the community spouse and they say okay well you can either keep half of that up to a hundred and thirty thousand dollars or you if it's even less than that you're able to keep to at least twenty six thousand dollars hopefully that's not the case but so most of the time people are going to fall in between somewhere along those and they're able to keep half of the assets the other half is what has to be spent before mm-hmm. Medicaid can be achieved. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So there's a ceiling and a floor for the community spouse resource allowance, and everything else is what has to be spent down like right. or strategically planned with before eligibility can be achieved. So just to recap, Medicaid eligibility requires that we satisfy medical eligibility, income eligibility, and asset eligibility. And then... That all gets disclosed to the Medicaid office through the Medicaid caseworker. The procedure for completing and submitting an application, we just walk through generally what's required, how it's submitted, what the timeline looks like, how fast or slowly can they process a case, things like that. Yeah. So the procedure
1: is a little bit different for both states. Again, in Delaware, there's a a pre-referral type of document that has to be done, and that gets the medical piece moving while you're also getting the financial piece going. And in Delaware, the application goes to a central intake unit first where they then assign it to a case manager somewhere within the state. It has no relevance to where you live or where you're receiving care initially. Where in Maryland, you submit the application, you can actually submit it online or because a lot of our applications have a lot of support documentation, we tend to submit it to the county where the either the spouse is living or care is being received. Um, from there, again, we submit all of our applications with all the support documentation, in hopes that it'll help move things along a little faster. The case managers then have a set amount of time to review the case and come back to you with what's called either a We Need Letter in Delaware or a 1052 in Maryland asking for additional documentation. If there's something that they need further explanation for or if they they need updated bank statements, things along those lines. At that point, also behind the scenes, they're working on the medical piece as well. They're going to request documentation from their doctor or the facility. In Delaware, they have 90 days to complete an application. In Maryland, they have six months to complete an application. Sometimes it's fast. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, (laughs) especially in the COVID world, it's slow. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of us kind of staying in touch with the case managers, finding out if there's anything else that they need, letting them know that we're here to check in on the applications.
0: So I'm a lawyer, so I I feel like I can ask you this question. Do you have to have a lawyer prepare your Medicaid application for you? You don't have to have a lawyer to prepare your Medicaid application for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to rag on us for a minute. No, (laughs) I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, if a loved one is in a nursing home and they are otherwise destitute and qualify under the Medicaid regulations, the business office manager might offer to assist with the Medicaid application process, or the family might elect to do that on their own. Right. But can you talk about the benefits of having an attorney sure. prepare the Medicaid application and why there are benefits to that?
1: Yeah. So anytime that you have somebody that has done it over and over and over again, you're going to get better results because they know what to put. Don't put any blanks if you can avoid it, things along those lines. They're gonna know what the case manager is looking for. For example, like when I'm looking at a bank statement if I see a deduction for Banker's Life or Colonial Pen, I'm going to know that maybe there's a life insurance that we don't know about that the family didn't know about because it's in a safe deposit box somewhere. The case managers and Medicaid, they're going to look for the same type of things. So those are the things that we know to be on the lookout for that maybe you wouldn't know to be on the lookout for if you're just you know, a loved one trying to help. We also generally have a good relationship with all of the Medicaid case managers. We have all their emails, their phone numbers, so we stay in contact with them through the application period, which is a big thing because these case managers are hard workers and they're overloaded with cases. And unfortunately, sometimes they look at a case one time, they don't have everything they need. They send out the letter and then they put it to the side until they can get back to it or until somebody brings it to their attention to get back to it. Um, And so that's why it's important to have somebody there that's advocating for you, asking for them to look at your application. And the lawyers are also going to know the rules, what you can do, what you can't do, what type of strategies there might be
0: to protect some assets along the way. And I think that that's important because the Medicaid caseworker is never going to say to a family, here are the rules, right. here are the strategies, here's how you could qualify a loved one for Medicaid benefits. That's right. what elder law attorneys are there to do. Right. And when we help a family strategically plan, we insist on doing the Medicaid application because we disclose everything we're not hiding it but we also know how to disclose it without it jeopardizing eligibility so that you know one of the best parts about a medicaid application it's i mean it's a booklet of of information that's required is has there have there been any transfers gifts mm-hmm. or uncompensated right you know transfers out of the person's name and and that page alone, have you made any gifts, can be the make or break moment. Right. And we know how to disclose that information. We know what kind of penalty to anticipate as right. a result of gifts. So it's just like anything else. Sure. You know what you're doing. You can do it yourself. Yeah. If you've never done it before and you don't know what you're doing, best thing to do is to hire counsel to help you through it. And we also encourage families because oftentimes we're working with kids, and you know the, the client is the senior, the parent, but the kids have full-time jobs. they're raising their own family, they're trying to manage mom or dad's needs and finances. And it can be extremely beneficial for them to just hire a professional to take that burden off of them, know that it's getting done, know that we have a team of people who can help get it done and that it's going to get done properly. And they generally
1: also know early on into our process what to expect. So we provide a checklist early on and what kind of documentation Medicaid is going to be looking for. So that they can start gathering that stuff, getting their power of attorneys on file. Whereas if they don't know that until after they submit the application, they're already well into their 90-day or their six-month window where now they're just trying to research assets that might be in place. Or now they're just trying to get their power of attorney on file. So they're kind of already behind the eight ball at that point, unfortunately. So I think
0: that's also another little benefit Mm -hmm. that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Saving time. Right. Time is money in this world, especially when we're dealing with $13,000 nursing home bill in the process. So, all right. So let's wrap up today's episode by just talking about once a person has achieved eligibility for Medicaid, are there annual reporting requirements? What does Medicaid ask for on an annual basis? How frequently does a family connect with the, the what's called the managed care organization, which I refer to as kind of a liaison between the family and Medicaid? Yeah. So in Delaware, all long-term care Medicaid is managed
1: by currently one of two health insurance companies, AmeriHealth or Highmark. And they're exactly what you said, a liaison that's actually who the state reimburses um, to manage care instead of having maybe state employees to oversee all of that aspect. And those MCOs, managed care organizations, are responsible generally for doing a quarterly assessment and more so not the financial piece, but looking at the beneficiary to make sure that their needs are being met. If there's anything that you need like home renovations to be safe, things along those lines. They prepare a care plan. From a financial standpoint, there is a yearly redetermination that is done where you're providing your current income, your current health expenses, and your current bank statements to make sure that you continue to meet both those income and asset tests.
0: Perfect. Is there anything else you think we should add to wrap up Medicaid eligibility or you think that covers it?
1: I think that covers it for a summary because there's always a
0: million moving pieces to Medicaid. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.